All right, guys, good evening. There is a lot of testosterone up in the house tonight, huh? I saw some females walk in, and they just looked around. They said, no way. I'm out. Hey, we're glad you're here. This is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a powerful night, and it's going to be a really interesting night. Uh, we are so excited to have Mark Geist with us. He's actually a new lifer, and um, he is going to be talking about what happened in Benghazi when he was there on the rooftops. He's also going to be talking about his faith and how God, uh, his faith under fire and how God has impacted him over the years. And so it's going to be really intriguing and uh, glad you're here. I want to take just a couple minutes before we invite Mark up. Uh, we have a couple of giveaways. When you're going through the pizza line, you saw that we had some cards there to get your name and your email. And the reason why is because we want to keep you in the loop on what's going on with New Life Men. We have some uh, great things coming up. We also wanted to give uh, a couple of books away and then a couple of tickets to an Air Force football game. Do we have any Falcon fans? Anybody Air Force fans? Okay. Well, in just a second, I'm going to give away a couple of tickets to the Air Force Hawaii game. We're going to send you to the game. The game is at Air Force. It's not at Hawaii. I mean, you guys, come on. I heard it. We're going to start with a couple of Mark's books here. He, Mark co-authored this book. It's 13 Hours, the inside of account of what really happened in Benghazi. These are autographed copies. And so the first name is Sammy Hernandez. Come on, Sammy. Come on down. That's your copy. The second book, Sammy Right over there, big guy. Uh, Chris Wells. Chris, where are you at? Come on down. The second copy is yours, Chris. Come on, Chris, you gotta, you gotta hustle. Let's see it. Like your junior year, football, come on. He, he says he's too old. Congratulations, Chris. Okay, here's the last thing, two tickets. Air Force in Hawaii, it's October 22nd, and Gabe Jenkins, amazing. Oh, I'm disqualified, that's me, okay. How about this, Christian Welch, Christian, where are you at? Oh, he's coming, okay. I don't see him. Come on, you're going way too slow, Christian. This is your moment, man. Hey, congratulations. Yes, you're going to Hawaii. Okay, real quickly, we have these on the seats. I want to draw your attention to this. If you ever wonder, hey, what's going on with New Life Men? What's, what are the opportunities to plug in and connect? We put one of these on the seats. On the front side uh, is a description of fire teams. These are our men's groups. You're going to hear more about this as we uh, go on with the evening. But essentially, here, this is what a fire team is. It's a group of four to seven men who are being really intentional to pursue God together. They're being intentional to walk together. The men who are in a fire team right now, and we have fire team groups 
that are meeting all over the city, really all over the region. These are guys who believe we're stronger when we're together. And so tonight we're going to be talking more about fire teams, but I want to encourage you to consider getting plugged into one of these groups. God is doing some powerful things through these groups. Then on the back side, there are two things that I want to highlight. On the first Tuesday of every month, we gather in the World Prayer Center for a men's breakfast. It's short and sweet. We meet at 6.30. We're done at 7.30. We have breakfast. It's man food. All right? You'll like it. Uh, We have breakfast together. We have a time of prayer and worship, and then we have a short encouraging message. We're done by 7.30. So put that on your calendar. Just plug that in now on your phone. It's the first Tuesday of every month uh, with the exception of July, so we'd love to have, so it's this, this coming Tuesday. We'd love for you to, to join us there. And then the last thing is the Men's Mountain Advance. September 9th to the 11th, we're going to be uh, going together as New Life Men to Bear Trap Ranch. It's going to be a powerful weekend, and it's going to be an adventurous weekend, and it's going to be encouraging. So we think at the end of that weekend, you're going to be saying, that's just what I needed. And so uh, space is limited for that. And so I do want to encourage you, if you're interested, you can go to the website, newlifechurch.org, and uh, sign up for that early before the spots are up. So that's the, uh, the Men's Mountain Advance, September 9th to the 11th. Okay. All right. It's kind of hot in here, isn't it? I think this is probably the most men we've ever had in this room, but that's a good problem to have. Uh, Mark Geist, co-author of 13 Hours. Uh, and Colin Willis, who's the pastor of our military ministry, they're going to come up on stage in, in just a couple minutes. But uh, if you haven't seen the movie 13 Hours, so this book, Mark, Mark's book 13 Hours, uh, was turned into a movie. It's been in theaters. It's really an intriguing movie. If you haven't seen it, I want to encourage you to think about uh, But we want to set this stage for you tonight before these guys come on, uh, on stage by showing you the trailer. So take a look. This is the trailer from 13 Hours. When you dare to take a breath Don't oh, care about no medals on your you chest Steal the eye and kill the shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up It's under attack! Let's go! You're US ambassador Yes, You're not the first responders. You will fight. Let's go! We are here! There's no justification to be here. Get out of here. Stand down! If you do not get here soon, Won't take the hard road all alone. Hey, look up at them wrong property! And Chris is dying, he's still inside! I'm a leaf, don't leave! Before they burn me down! Expecting any friendly? 
I'm not aware of Give a big new life welcome to Mark Geist. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here tonight, and thank you for such a great turnout. Um, first thing, can you please remain standing? Um, first thing I want to do is give a shout out to all the uh, veterans um, and the active duty personnel. Thank you very much for your service and thank you for all you do. Um, we're gonna, I start every presentation with the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, it's a little bit different rendition. Um, it's kind of a rock and roll version, but it kind of says who I am and says who we in the military are. I think you'll all appreciate it. So uh, please join me. Uh, we'll have the flag up on the uh, screen, so join me. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Go ahead and be seated. Doesn't that just really get your blood pumping? Reminds, uh, reminds us for what we're here for, why, why we have this great country that we do. Hey, Mark, let me, uh, before you begin, uh, Mark, and, Mark is an ex-Marine. Are there any other Marines out there? Well, come on now, Marines. Oh, there you go. Um, what, a, what an honor it is. What a great rendition, by the way, of the Star Spangled Man. That was just amazing. Uh, it's a real honor to have Mark tonight. And we're going to allow Mark to kind of tell his story in just a minute. We're going to then ask a few questions. But um, I want to just, if we can, to help Mark set this up, we're going to talk a little bit about Mark's uh, experience in the Benghazi incident. It was 2012. About a year prior to that, uh, Gaddafi had been disposed of in Libya. The country was essentially at civil war then. Uh, it was on September 11th of 2012. The ambassador was in Tripoli, but making a move that day to go 400-some miles to the east, I think, yeah. to, to Benghazi. So the embassy itself, the consulate itself, is in uh, Tripoli, but, he, the, but the ambassador was going to take a trip to Benghazi. Benghazi had a consulate, so it had a place where he could go and stay, but it also had an annex about a half a mile away that Mark's going to point out, and that's where it was a, can I say this? Yeah. It was a CIA place. It's an annex. That's the Culinary Scratch that. Institute of America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you can imagine this, now Mark's part of this security team that's with the annex at that time. And the question was then, we knew the embassy was under attack. This was going on. And the great question becomes, at what point do we release these uh, guards? He was then a contract guard, and he's going to talk more about that, to go forward to help defend that and, and to defend... Uh, actually, the ambassador. So here we are now. We, I think we set that up okay. And Mark now is going to talk to his story. They're in Benghazi, and Mark's got some slides and a little preparation, and we'll, we'll pick it up for some discussion in just a minute. So, Mark. Um, and a little bit of, uh, to add to that, I worked for a group called GRS, or Global Response Staff, and our job was to protect CIA case officers while they do their job in the worst places in the world. Um, to us, every day was 9-11 because we worked in an environment where your life was in danger, you're in danger of getting attacked every day. So a lot of people ask us, you know, where, where's your security heightened? Well, we always had our security at a very high rate. Um, we moved around a lot by ourselves or in teams of two or three. Uh, and that day, I just happened to be out in, uh, I guess the best way to put it, me and a female case officer were out having a dinner date with a local Libyan couple. Um, when about halfway through it, it's getting on about 9.30, when I get a call from Tyrone Woods that says, hey, you need to get back to the, cons or to the annex right now and stay away from the consulate. Now he called me over his cell phone, so it's kind of an open source thing, so he didn't want to tell me too much information, and he didn't need to. Um, I knew that he wouldn't interrupt uh, a dinner date unless it was something significant. So I gather up the female case officer 
who, she was a little bit difficult. If you've seen the movie, it was kind of like that. She's a little difficult because I was interrupting her conversation and she didn't like that. Um, and so I kind of had to be a little bit um, firm with her. I get her in the vehicle and we turn on the radio and what we hear is they're setting the buildings on fire and they've overtaken the consulate. And the, ne the next thing I hear is, if you don't get here now, we're all gonna die. Now they did use a few expletives in there as well and you could hear the, pa the fear and um, the near panic in their voice. And this was from the State Department guys and the female case officer I was with at that time just starts, she's, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. She wanted to tell me all how to do my job and I kinda had to look at her and say, you know, you need to shut, you need to shut up, I need your eyes. <laughs> Beep. <laughs> I needed her eyeballs, not her mouth. Um, I needed her, and what I was telling her is, I need you to be looking for bad guys because we're going to make our way as fast as we can without drawing too much of attention to ourselves back to the annex. And I knew that they were going to be setting up checkpoints because um, that's just how they would operate. They'll just throw up a checkpoint because that way they can start catching people who are moving out there that shouldn't be moving. Um, this is a uh, this is a little bit of an overhead of Benghazi. The uh, blue pin up there is the annex and to kind of set how big the annex was is it was about the size of a football field a little bit smaller I'd have to run around the inside of it four five times just to make a mile um, the red pin is the consulate which as a crow's fly is just over half a mile almost three quarters of a mile away and then the blue uh, marker or the I'm sorry the red marker that's a telephone is February 17th uh, Martyrs Brigade it was a local militia that uh, actually was um, hired by the State Department to provide the QRF, or which is the Quick Reaction Force. And their job was, should something happen at the annex, to come over and help them defend the annex. Along with that, there was five of their individuals that lived on the annex every day. Um, happened to be that day on 9-11, one of them called in sick. I think that probably wasn't a coincidence. He probably knew what was going to happen. Uh, again, this is a little bit closer, uh, a close-up of it. And this here is from inside the consulate. And the significance of this picture is if you see the building in the far background with the windows overlooking the consulate uh, wall there, that morning Bob and Tig had met with um, the local intel service, the Libyan local intel service, and they were overlooking the consulate, perfect spot for them to spy on the US government, right? And they never knew where our location was, and they just happened to ask that day, um, ask Bob, our chief of base, who he was in charge of the, um, of the base. He was the chief, or the most senior CIA officer there. And they asked him where this covert, uh, CIA base was, and in his infinite wisdom, he told him. Um, again, not probably the best decision he ever made. This is our annex here. And at the bottom at the six o'clock, that's building A, and we'll go counterclockwise. You've got building C, or I mean building B at the 12 o'clock up top, building B, uh, C, and then building D over at nine o'clock and that'll play some significance later in where people are deployed um, during the attack that actually happens there. So when I'm, get, when I'm on my way back from uh, the dinner date, 
the rest of the team, the other five guys in our team, had also got the same call. And within five minutes, they had the vehicle staged and were ready to go out the gate. When Tonto went up to Bob and said, hey, we're ready to go. And, and Bob, again, looks at him and says, hey, you need to wait. And, you know, at first we kind of thought maybe that's not a, you know, that's not too bad of a thing, at least the very first one. He's probably trying to coordinate with the Feb 17 guys to let them know we're coming out um, so we don't have what we call a blue on green or a friendly fire incident. Well, after about another 15 minutes go by, Tig comes out and goes up to him and says, hey, we need to go now. We're losing the initiative because you can still hear everything coming over the radio. And Bob looks straight at him and says, no, you need to stand down. Well, Tig kind of shakes his head because he knows what that means. Bob is not going to let anybody go. And Bob was horrendous for making those types of decisions when people's lives were in peril um, and we could go out there and at least get near them in case something happened. If they needed our assistance, he'd never let us go. And there's guys from other places that he's worked with um, that I know that say he, the same thing of him. Well, another 10 minutes goes by and Tonto goes back up to Bob and says, hey, we need to go right now. And all of a sudden over the radio, you hear the same thing I heard as I'm driving back is if you don't get here now, we are all gonna die. Well, at that point, they just said, you know, this is it, we're gonna go. They just jumped in the vehicles, didn't care what Bob had to say. They signaled to the guy at the gate, he opened it up and they just, uh, they left. And Bob was left back there shaking his head, wondering what he was gonna do next. And this is kind of the, the route that they took. It was a very, it was, um, took them about five minutes to get there, maybe 10. And if you follow the red line down around, um, and if, where it intersects over there closest to the annex, I mean closest to the uh, consulate, which is marked TMF. And the reason that's marked TMF is after the attack on Benghazi, it's been put out that this was a temporary mission facility, not a consulate. And the significance of that is under U.S. law and bills passed by Congress of what kind of security measures are supposed to be in place at an embassy, a consulate, or a temporary mission, um, and the kind of waivers you can get. Well, the road that they come up onto at that intersection is called Gunfighter, and we've named it Gunfighter because that wasn't the first time we've ever had a gunfight in that area. So it happened to be uh, a place of uh, reverence for us. Well, Tig uh, comes up to the first corner up there, and uh, I forgot to get my pointer out. Hold on here. There I go, not being prepared, right? <laughs> See, I was going to talk about that later, about being prepared and all of that. <laughs> See, I'm going to use this as a uh, training tool here in a second. <laughs> See, and then there I go. I forgot to check the batteries, right? So you know how that is. If you don't work on the stuff up... Mark, this is a good time to tell them about your six P's. Yes, exactly. What is that? What is that? It's, it's uh... Prior planning prevents piss-poor performance, right? There you go. There you go. So now we know who's, six P's. Who's, who's got egg on his face now. <laughs> See? I told you I was going to use this for... We, we planned this. I planned this just right. See, it's great when a plan comes together, Gabe. Yeah. <laughs> um, Right here, this is the uh, consulate right here. This is the ambassador's residence where he would stay. This is the command center. Um, this was where there was um, sleeping quarters and a chow hall. And this is where the Feb 17 uh, guys that were the QRF that lived there stayed. 
And this is the front gate. And then right here is a rear gate that was not used to go in and out unless it was an emergency. Um, so they pull up over here and uh, there's a bunch of guys, they're getting a bunch of fire from, uh, down from the consulate, uh, from the main gate. And as Tig comes around the corner, he has a 40 Mike Mike uh, grenade launcher, and we call it a thumper. Uh, it's an independent weapon system, breech load, kind of like an old shotgun. He puts a round in, pops it up, shoots three of them down there in less than a minute. Um, all three of them hit right around the front gate, just short of it, and it pretty much disperses the guys and all the fire that's coming from there. Well, right behind Tig is a guy with a uh, Dishka, which is a 50 cal machine gun. It's a Russian-made uh, 50 cal machine gun, and this guy's just shooting over Tig's head like crazy, and that's not having any effect on him down the street um, until Tig launches those, uh, those 40 mic mics, um, which this allows Tig uh, Jack and Tyrone to move down that road and gain entry into the front of the consulate. At this point, um, Tonto and DB, instead of, they're moving their way this way, they jump a bunch of these fences, they're crossing over here, and then what they're wanting to do is get up over into this building here up on the third or, I think it was the fourth or fifth story, so they could uh, actually have an overview of what was going on in the consulate. They can radio ahead, um, to Tig and uh, the guys as they're moving down this way and they're getting ready to move on. Um, once they got up in that building, they realized they didn't have any viewpoint or a uh, solid viewpoint because there was a row of trees that ran up the side of this right here that, per that uh, blocked their view. So they went ahead, jumped down, and they started moving this way to come up the back way in kind of a pincer envelopment. Well, as they came onto the consulate, what you see is, um, and a lot of us, if you've seen the news right after 9-11, after the attack over there, you see all the burning buildings and there was the guy standing there in the uh, white t-shirt and uh, jeans. He's kind of like, yes, uh, well, um, celebrating the fact that he was able to start a fire. And uh, I think, it, I don't know if he went to Boy Scouts or not, but um, I think they had to use gasoline, so I'm guessing he probably didn't. <clears throat> so that building is the, uh, is. That there is the Feb 17 barracks. And as Tig, Taunt, or Tig D, uh, Jack, and Tyrone come on, the first thing they see also in, straight in front of them is the ambassador's residence, and it's just in flames. And what they have to do is move in there, and they're coming up to the front of it, and immediately they see one of the State Department guys pulling a body out of one of the windows, and that was Sean Smith. Sean Smith, they were able to find Sean Smith's body. He had succumbed to smoke inhalation. This is the very front of the building. The, uh, the window here to um, the right is the safe room, and that's the window that they were pulling the body out of. Um, Jack immediately went over, started uh, assessing to see if there was CPR necessary, any medical, um, and he determined that Sean was uh, dead. Tig and Tyrone asked if... Uh, the ambassador was still there, if they'd known where he was, and they said no, don't know if he, he never got out. So they're assuming he's either inside or had been kidnapped. So they go inside the building, and when they go in, um, you know, the, it's about 12 foot ceilings, and from the ceiling almost all the way to the floor is just black, pitch black smoke. There's flames coming from various bedrooms, and you know, the heat in there is like sticking your head in an oven. This is what the facility, this is what the ambassador's residence looked like before the fire and before the attack. And then this is the safe room. And then this is what it looked like afterwards. 
So Tig and Tyrone had been in and out of the building about five, six times. Uh, and so they had to stop and kind of take a breath and then they went back in again. And this time they tried to get in as deep as they could looking for the ambassador and they got separated. And Tig had made his way back out and Tyrone kind of got lost in there. And all of a sudden Tig says he hears Tyrone yelling, Tig, Tig, where you at? So Tig, again, with no total disregard for his own safety, goes right back in and he, um, they play a little bit of that Marco Polo game we used to play as a kid and they find each other and Tig's able to bring uh, Tyrone out, guide him out. So they get out and it was about that time that, uh, this is the back gate, um, they start receiving a counter assault. And right now we've, they've been on there almost two hours. Tonto and DB were able to make it over the back gate. Uh, they opened it up for a couple of the Fed 17 guys that came with them. And Tonto looked at the guy and said, hey, you need to close this gate after your commander comes in. And the guy failed to do that. Um, lesson learned there is anything you want done right, do it yourself, right? So uh, as they come up, they've cleared out all the uh, sensitive material. They loaded it into the vehicles, and the State Department guys are getting ready to leave. And as they left, they told them, okay, when you go out the front gate, make sure you turn left. And sure enough, in the panic and... Uh, um, part of it is that working, you know, you do the same thing over and over and you get that muscle memory. Sometimes that's really good. Um, when we're talking about getting up in the morning, uh, you know, talking about prayer, talking about coming to church, talking about fellowship, setting that muscle memory both mentally and physically, we need to do that. But in a case like this, what we had is that muscle memory from doing the same thing, traveling the same route. Instead of turning right as they were supposed to, they went out and turned left. And it just happened to be about three houses down, there was an Al-Qaeda safe house. So probably in a firefight, a bad place to go. And sure enough, it was. As they come through by that building, a bunch of guys jump out and light them up. Uh, they get ambushed. Luckily, they were in a level six armored personnel carrier, or not an armored personnel carrier, it was a level six armored Toyota Hilux. Um, vehicle got shot up as they made their way back over to the annex and at this time I'm over at the annex getting security ready because by the time I got back from uh, with the female case officer they had already left so I'm making sure that um, our fighting positions have water have ammunition and whatever else we're gonna we think we're gonna need to defend our place because my assumption is that they're gonna come to us next one way or another they're gonna find us and they're gonna come there and at this point, I'm just making sure we're prepared. It goes back to that six-piece thing, right? Thank goodness I was more there than here. <laughs> um, well, right as the guys go out to get ready to head out the front gate over there, the, the State Department guys, the counter-assault comes. Tig makes his way out of the building, and he gets up uh, into the corner up on top of this building right here. And he's right at that corner, and um, I got to see the uh, overhead... Uh, drone footage later after I got out of the hospital about six, eight weeks after this. And what you saw was a guy with an RPG. He would hide behind the wall. He'd load the RPG. He'd kind of lean out and step into the opening of the gate and he'd fire that RPG at the building. And a lot of times, the first two I think flew over and missed. One of them, the third one hit. And as he comes out to fire that fourth one, um, the, you know, Tig comes up over the wall and as you can see there's 
the bottom of the roof, there's a three foot, kind of a three foot wall. Here's the, the bottom of the roof where you would be standing. And this is kind of a wall that goes up on the side. Use that for cover and concealment. And Tig comes over top of that and he fires about 10 rounds as fast as he can. And at least three or four of them hit the guy. And what happened, and Tig didn't realize this, and I don't think anybody did until we saw the drone footage, is some of those rounds also impacted that RPG. Well, that RPG round had already been fired and was coming straight for Tig's position. And those rounds, I mean, the odds of that happening, two things coming from opposite directions like that and impacting each other is slim to none. Um, my personal feelings is that was God's hand in this that night because he saved Tig's life by that because had it not hit that, Tig would have been dead. And Tig had some other work for, that God wanted him to do um, that night. And, um, you know, a lot of people talk about their faith in... Uh, their faith in firefights and you know I've had a lot of people talk about how that I've ever been worked with and stuff how they're an atheist all or they don't believe in God or they haven't accepted Jesus Christ as their savior well most of them all change their mind when they start getting shot at I don't know how many in here have been shot at but there's no atheist in a fighting hole I'll tell you that <coughs> some of the strongest and biggest and most uh, I guess hard-charging guys who want to be that, um, when they start getting shot at, you kind of have a, I, I call it the coming to Jesus, you know, because at that point, you need him in your life. So the nice thing that happened that night is once Tig shot that guy and that RPG took off in another direction, um, the, it pretty much ceased the firefight. So the decision had to be made at that point to either stay there and keep searching for the ambassador, which they'd spent two hours doing that, and they didn't know if he was still in the building or if he had been kidnapped. They couldn't find him in the building, and they knew that if he was in there, he, was gonna, he would probably have already been succumbed to smoke inhalation, because we're talking about two hours. So the decision had to be made to go ahead and leave the consulate and uh, head back to the annex, because over at the annex, there's me, I've got a couple other guys with me that uh, they weren't real, they were our guys that watched the, um, our camera system. They were our sec backup security kind of guys. And they, both of them had a little bit of uh, combat experience, but not a lot. So they were helping me out over there. And we had a, over two dozen people at our facility. So they knew they had to get back and help out over there in case the fight came that, that direction. Well, they did the right thing. When they went out the front gate, they turned left. Um, they made it back without any, uh, any, any involvement. So as they get back to the annex, uh, first thing they do, and this is the front gate to our annex, and then this is kind of looking at the inside. Uh, on our, some of our fighting positions, as you see here in the corner over uh, right here, um, that's an elevated fighting position. We built those. Uh, it's, we made it out of scrap metal built those so we could actually have something to fight over and see on the other side of the walls that we're dealing with. This here is, uh, in this corner over here is where myself and Tig spent the first probably four hours of the night after they got back fighting. Uh, and this is our prison gym right here. Um, and it wasn't a place where we had a prison. Um, we just called it that. Anybody here who's ever been to county jail? Um, whoops, I didn't raise my hand. Uh, <clears throat> Any of you who's been, you know, worked around the prisons or worked around the jails, the, the gym is always an outdoor kind of facility, nothing real fancy, kind of kind of makes you hard. Um, 
and gets you uh, trained like you need to be trained. And this is a, build, a view of it from the opposite direction. And this building here is building C, and it has a lot of significance at about 5.30 in the morning. That's where I ended up. And again, this is an overhead view of the annex, and the area over here and all the way back into here, this is what we called zombie land. Um, it was pretty much the only area that they would be able to attack us from because there was some open area that they could maneuver. The other sides, there was other, you know, 12 foot walls, 15 foot walls, and they wouldn't be able to, they could get up close to the wall, but they couldn't, you know, they wouldn't be able to get any firing positions on us. So um, it's getting on about 12.30 now, and we start hearing a bunch of vehicles start manning up, uh, pulling up into this area, screeching. And first thing we do is we ask our boss, um, Bob, and I, well, I can't say he's our boss, but we ask the chief of base, is there any, uh, is that Feb 17 coming up or not? And he says, as if you've seen the movie, uh, no ID. He doesn't have an idea. And so we're gonna assume these are bad guys. Well, we all of a sudden see a bunch of guys moving up through these bushes here. And now we have the benefit of technology. We have some of the best equipment uh, that the military hands down to us. Um, and so we had night vision devices and we had lasers on our guns. So uh, we started identifying the, ID, the people moving up on us. Um, Tonto and DB were in this, on this building, which was elevated. I was in this corner. Tig was in this corner and he started moving around. He went over to check with our team leader and then he was moving up to come to my position. And as he's moving up through uh, the prison gym there, all of a sudden this thing comes, I see this thing flying over the wall and it has sparks coming from it. Kind of lands in between me and Tig, and about 15, 20 feet between, uh, from me and about 10 feet in front of him and it blows up. And it was a gelatina bomb. And the gelatina bomb, it's just, uh, it's a liquid uh, explosive. And first thing Tig does is he stops and pats himself down wondering if he still has his arms and legs. Um, he does, he jumps up beside me and he starts firing and this attack, there was about 15 guys and it was more of a probing attack. They were trying to shoot out our lights and we kind of make quick work of them. Uh, you know, it's, it took us about 10 minutes to get rid of most of them. Um, you would shoot one, he'd go down, his friend would pop up while well, we'd shoot that one. Kind of like playing that game whack-a-mole um, down on the... Yeah. So uh, anybody here shoot prairie dogs out east of here? <laughs> yes. That's what it was like. There we go. Um, so, uh, you know, we knock them back and they pull back and, you know, we're starting to feel pretty good. So what happens is the next thing we do is we get a phone call that the ambassador's body is at the hospital. At this point, we weren't sure if it was um, a trap or a, you know, a ruse to get us to come out and try to find him or come get him because we'd also heard that Ansar al-Sharia, the guys that were attacking us, had taken over the hospital because that's where they were sending all their wounded. Simultaneously at this time, the team from Tripoli, our, so our sister team had came down from Tripoli and had arrived at the airport. It's about one o'clock in the morning. So they're making their way down to, and they're trying to negotiate with one of the other militias that kind of controlled the airport to get to us. And you can imagine, I mean, a bunch of Americans show up in civilian clothes with a bunch of guns and a bag full of money and start asking you, hey, I need a ride. 
what are you going to do? You're going to negotiate and get the highest price you can because that militia knew what was going on. As they're trying to make their way to this, we're getting ready for the next attack. And um, sure enough, about an hour later, they start doing the exact same thing and they move them back up to these positions. And as they're moving up, we're kind of waiting for them to get real close this time. We kind of want to let them think that they had an advantage on us. That whole kind of concord back in the Revolutionary War, wait to see the whites of their eyes. Um, we wanted to get them up close. Well, as they're moving up, a car pulls up and a guy jumps out and he has his arm kind of thrown back like this and I catch him out of the corner of my eye. I traverse my gun over and I shoot him. He falls down uh, like a sack of potatoes and what he's throwing falls short of our back gate and explodes another one of those gelatina bombs. And opens. that's the initiation for the next firefight. Well, we start again. We start playing uh, whack-a-mole and start, we take one down and because of our positions, the four of us kind of have them in a good crossfire. So anybody coming from this direction, uh, Tonto and DB have them, and we're kind of shooting across the other way, catching that. And this lasted about 20 minutes, and we were able to get rid of uh, the majority of them. Well, at one point, um, Bob comes on the radio and says, hey, Feb 17 says you guys are shooting at them. And Tig gets on the radio and says, well, hey, if you tell them to quit shooting at us, then we'll think about quit shooting at them. <laughs> and then Bob, again, in his infinite wisdom, says, Okay, I guess you can keep shooting. <laughs> Tig's like, you think? <laughs> oh, so we're getting on about 2 o'clock, 2.30 now, and uh, this, that firefight ends. They start pulling back again, and I move over to uh, Building C because up on here, and this is where Tyrone is, and Dave Ubin, one of the State Department guys, and... For the next, until about 5.30, it's been relatively quiet. The guys from Tripoli are still trying to negotiate their way to get to us, and they're making their way to, um, to our location now. Come about 5.30, um, me, and me and Tyrone were up there talking. We were talking about our kids, because we both had young kids. T Tig had a couple young uh, set of twins, a boy and a girl. Um, Tonto had some young children, and Jack had two boys that were about six and eight, six and eight and he just found out that his wife was pregnant with their third child that morning. Um, and you kind of see, you know when in the mornings, before the sun starts rising, you start seeing the change in the, in the sky in the east. It's kind of bluish, that kind of bluish black. Um, you start hearing the call for prayer, so you know it's getting on morning. And anybody in the military knows the best time to attack is in about five minutes. Well... The guys from Tripoli arrive, and they pull up in a militia, and they pull up down in here, and they, a big militia helped get them there. So there were seven of them. They come in along with the commander of the militia and along with uh, um, Glenn Doherty. Bub is his call sign, and Bub was, uh, he was one of us as well. That was, and Instead of going into the building, Bub was the only one out of those seven that came in and went inside. The rest of them went inside the building C, and Bub came up top uh, on the rooftop. Um, he comes up there, and he wanted to talk to Tyrone because they were in the, in the SEALs together. They were instructors at, uh, at Bud's Basic Underwater Demolition School. Well, I never met Bub before, and he comes up, and he comes to me, and he, Tyrone introduced him and says, Hey, this is Bub Oz. He's a sniper. I'm like, well, I hope we're not going to need you, but, you know, it's great to have another sharpshooter, another expert rifleman up here. 
Well, Bub kind of walks to my left, and as he's turning, he kind of walks past Ty, and they kind of shake hands, and he's getting ready to go behind me back over to the uh, ladder, I think it is, and he's going to climb down. And it was about that time that a rock, uh, an RPG, gets fired from right here and hits the wall right in front of me and uh, Ty. And me and Ty are in this corner right here, and DB, or I mean not DB, but Dave Ubin is in this corner over here. Um, as that rocket hits the wall, small arms fire starts. Tyrone opens up with a, he had a belt-fed machine gun, and um, he kind of, what his call, what he called it was laying hate. And what he would do is he had a 200 round belt, uh, 200 rounds on that uh, machine gun. And normally you're gonna wanna do that three to four round burst. Well, Ty was gonna, what we call mowing grass. And he just pulled the trigger and he was kind of back and forth right about waist level. So anybody that was out there, they were gonna get hit. I opened up with my assault rifle and it was about that time when the first round, uh, first mortar round hit and it hit right on top of the wall. Um, where I was at was right here by this light and Ty was right in the corner. And that's where the first mortar round hit. When that first mortar round hit, it kind of knocked me, um, actually, I'm sorry, this is the second round. After the first round hit, I hear uh, Dave Ubin to my right, he yells out, I'm hit, I'm hit. Well, when you're dealing with small unit tactics, even though um, he's injured, I can't take my position, leave my position to go help him. Because if I do, then I'm not shooting the bad guys. We can't help each other until we secure our location, which means we gotta kill all the bad guys. Two things I know though from Dave Ubin yelling. By him yelling, it tells me two things right away, is that he's, that he's breathing and his heart's beating. So I know that he has to take care of himself. We call that, uh, in first aid, we call that self-aid. And then next is buddy aid after we secure that. Well, as he's sitting there yelling, the next, the next mortar hits, and that one kind of knocked me back. And as I stand back up, um, I was right in the middle of a magazine change, just got the magazine changed, and as I stand back up, I notice that Ty's in a fetal position at my feet. And as I come back up, I bring my left arm up to grab my rifle, and from about six inches above my uh, wrist, it was uh, kind of hanging off at a 90 degree angle. Um, I don't think it was meant to do that. Um, so I'm just swinging my arm up because I'm just thinking I got to start shooting. I got to keep shooting because I know Ty's out. I know that um, Dave Ubin's not firing anymore. So I got to stay in the fight. I got I, I to protect my brothers to my left and right. Um, and I keep swinging my arm up and I can't, just can't make it work. And it was about that time uh, the next round hit. The next round hit just short of where the first one did. And that one hit again and it, I felt, I didn't feel it at that time, but I got hit by shrapnel from that one. But as I looked over my shoulder, I saw Glenn Doherty or saw Bub go straight down on his face. Um, now he's out of the fight. I wasn't sure if he was taking cover or if he was actually uh, injured, but um, I didn't see him move. So I knew I had to get back into the fight again. I turned back and again, try to bring my arm up, and that's when the third mortar hit. And this is just short of the next one. And when the third one hit, that's the first time I actually felt the explosion um, of, of any pain. And it kind of felt like a thousand bees were stinging me. Um, the other thing I felt from it was just the bright light. It was about the size of a basketball. And uh, 
you can just, I mean, that's one thing that sticks with me is I remember it's like looking into the sun. Well, this hard-headed Marine decided at that point, I better get to some cover because if the fourth one lands, I'm probably not going to survive it. And luckily, again, I think this is, and this is another area where I know God was playing a part into this, is that militia that was out in front when the first, when the attack happened, they took off. Um, those four rounds hit within a 30 by 40 foot square in a minute and 19 seconds. The reason it stopped is because these guys in the militia had headed off in the direction where the mortar came from. Now, one could call that coincidence, but I don't believe in coincidence. I believe that that's God hand, God's hand again playing a part in this because, because of that, they didn't fire any mortars, which had they, that whole building probably would have collapsed and we'd have lost the lives of more than two dozen people that night. So I kind of sit up um, and as I'm sitting up, I realize that I think I'm bleeding out because I'm sitting in something wet. Well, second thought is it's cold, it's not hot, um, or it's not warm, so it must not be that, it's water. And that black thing up there is a tank, a water tank, and it had gotten perforated and flooded the top of the roof. So my, my next thought is I gotta check on Ty. So I kind of crawl over to where Ty's at and I'm trying to check to see if I can find a pulse on him. And then I start thinking back, I better get a tourniquet on my arm. So I pull a tourniquet out of my medical uh, bag. I start to put it on and I kind of get distracted with the shock and everything going on right then. And uh, about that time I see in the shadows or in, in a, a shadow come up over the top of the roof. And that was uh, Tig. And he was the first one that came over on top of the rooftop. And this is where he came over and found Dave Ubin right there. Dave Ubin was in bad shape. Uh, his arm was almost severed off, it was hanging off like mine was, and his left leg about six inches above the ankle was also almost completely severed off. Tig didn't waste no time, pulled out two tourniquets, got two tourniquets on Dave Ubin, saving his life that night. And then he turns and he starts coming to me. Um, and as he's coming over to me, um, he tells me later, and I'm sitting there trying to pick up my arm and put it back in place. I'm trying to hold it where it's supposed to be. And he looks at me and says, Oz, what are you doing? Why don't you quit playing with it? <laughs> I'm like, why? Why? It's not going to work. I mean, you know. <laughs> so uh, he, gets a turn, he gets the turn that I had out, and he puts it on my arm, and he helps me stand up. And um, I know that he's got to take care of Ty and Glenn. So I start walking across the roof over to the ladder. And as I get over to the ladder, um, that's the first time the other guys start coming up. A couple of the guys come up from out, down below and they're like, hey, can you get off the ladder by yourself? And I'm kind of like, well, I know I'm gonna have to because I know they need to take care of the guys there. So I kind of sit up on the edge there and I'm looking down at that ladder and I'm gonna hook my uh, good arm around the top rung. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I gotta swing my legs around. I'm gonna have to turn and try to land on this ladder. And, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you know, hey, I just survived three mortar attacks, um, three firefights. Now I'm going to fall off this darn roof and break my neck, right? I mean, who wants to go tell, you know, those aren't the kind of stories you want your kids to tell about how you died, you know? So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, and sure enough, I slide off and my feet don't land on the rung. I mean, what can go wrong will go wrong, Murphy's Law. But I luckily, I caught myself with my good arm, pulled myself up, got resituated and climbed down. I climbed down and kind of went around the front of the building to, uh, and laid down on the floor in there. And the CIA personnel, they had turned off all the lights inside. And uh, they had, uh, because they were afraid that the enemy would know where we're at. 
I didn't want to tell them that they just dropped four mortars on top of us so they know where we're at. <laughs> <clears throat> well, and I, 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 what I have is there's four flashlights and four sets of eyes sitting there just looking at me, and no one's doing nothing. So I, and I'm like, hey, somebody needs to get some medical shears and cut my clothes off because I know I'm bleeding from somewhere. So the female that I had been with earlier that night, she's the, first, she's the only one that took off, and she goes into the medical room, and she, you can hear her growing through stuff, and she yells out, hey, Oz, where are they, you know, where's, where's the shears at? And I'm like, well, they're in the first set of shelves, second or third row from the top. And I knew that because, I, again, it goes back to that six Ps. You know, you always make sure those things that are really important, which are like medical stuff, you know exactly where it's at. She got those, she came back, and she started cutting my clothes off. Well, the deputy chief of base at that time pulls out his buck knife, and he pulls this big old buck knife and pops it. He, he's like, here, let me help. Well, he's kind of, he's shaking like a dog. Uh, I won't say what he's, he's just shaking real bad. <laughs> and uh, he goes to start cutting the clothes off, and I'm like, you know, again, there I go. I survived three mortars. I didn't fall off the roof. Now this guy's going to try to cut my clothes off, and what's going to happen? He's going to stab me, and I'm going to die. Again, those aren't the stories I want my kids telling anybody. You know, how'd your dad die? Oh, he got stabbed by some other guy. And he was a friendly guy. So I convinced him to put his knife away. They got my clothes cut off, and uh, what they found is a few more holes in me. Um, I had gotten hit in the neck. I had a couple holes in my chest. Um, had another hole in my, near my femoral artery and about 10 or 15, well, 10, 15 under each leg and arm uh, up on both sides. I think they counted a total of 30. Um, but most of them weren't bleeding too bad, so we were all right. Uh, I was kind of still staying positive at this time. <laughs> I mean, life's good, right? My heart's beating and I'm, ble I'm breathing. Everything after that's gravy. Um, but truly, you know, um, I wouldn't have made it through that had God's angels not had their wings around me, and that's who took the majority of the blast that night. And I kind of feel, um, not only before that, but after, since then, my whole life, I've always felt that, you know, I'm invincible until God's done with me. And he's not done with me. This is one reason why is why I'm here tonight. Um, so I want to thank you all. Um, we have a few more questions and, uh, that we're going to talk about. So, um, but thank you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. For, uh, what, I, want, I do want to ask a couple of questions, and I think these are some questions you may want to ask. Mark, can, just for a few more minutes mm -hmm. if we can, though. Yeah. Um, so, and this is from a kind of a tactical perspective, if nothing else, though. Uh, in the movie, it, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible fight. It's an incredible battle. And one of the things that struck me about the movie and some things that you've described and we've seen here is, is kind of the, this enemy, what this enemy was like. Could you take just a few minutes and describe what that, what, who, what, what did that look like? What was the nature of that enemy? Well, you know, in, um, in, it's twofold over there. In, you, don't know what, you don't know who's who. Um, driving around in the city, I met a lot of people, a lot of Libyan uh, nationals, and the majority of them were happy that America had helped them get do what they wanted. 
get rid of Gaddafi, get rid of the oppressor, get rid of the evil that they had. Um, and they were thankful. They would stop, and if they knew you were, they knew we were Westerners, because of course I'm not this blonde haired blue-eyed guy. No matter what I do, ain't gonna blend in over there, right? Um, but they would come up and say thank you. And a lot of them, what I found, the average person is kind of like us. They wanted to raise their kids in a safe environment. They wanted to go to have them go to school. They wanted to make a living, earn a dollar, and they didn't want their government sticking their hand in their pocket. Um, well. Then you had the other side of it. You had these 10 militias, at least 10, that were there to take over and monopolize on the people and the goodwill and the good nature of people. And, you know, they dress like the people. They blend in. You don't know who's who. And one of the critics of the movie came out and said, you know, the movie, it's very, it's very hard to follow. You don't know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, that's the most positive critique you could have gave because that's what it's like. You know, we didn't know who the bad guys were until they're pointing a gun at you, until they were starting to shoot at you. And I kind of take that in my personal life. I feel the same way. I don't know all the time when the devil's going to attack me, who he is, how he's going to attack my faith, how he's going to come after me and get me to go the opposite direction of where I should be going. Because he's going to cloak himself in those things that I think are um, pleasure or happy or good and he's going to trick me, and I don't know it until he necessarily has the gun pointing right at me. And that's where I think the teamwork, um, and it kind of plays into the whole fire team concept that we have here at New Life, is, you know, you got to surround yourself with, self with people that you trust, who have courage, honor, and dedication, and that you know are going to watch your back. Because um, the devil's going to attack each of us in a different direction. Because my weaknesses may not be the same as yours or yours. So if we come together as a group and we minister to each other and, get e and have each other's back, then it's going to make us that much stronger and the devil that much harder for him to come after us. Yeah, that's so good. That's actually why we call them fire teams here at New Life. And there's a scene from the movie of four guys running, uh, I think, towards the compound. And one of them says, hey, we're good. Four makes a fire team. Let's go. Yeah. But it's that basic idea. Hey, we're, we're stronger together. That's just reality. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, look at the 12 disciples and what they accomplished. So talk about the relationship you had with those guys. You're, you're, you've shared, uh, by the way, very good job laying out the story uh, and, and explaining what happened. But talk about the friendship, the camaraderie you shared with those guys on the roof. You, you, you had nicknames for one another. You guys were brothers. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you guys had an extraordinary relationship. You know, and, that, and he's right, we did. And I mean, part of that relationship is built by being under fire. And I think, again, I kind of relate that to, you know, some of the close friends that I have here in the civilian world. Um, they're the, the closest ones are those that I share my problems with who helped me get through those difficult things that I faced in my life, um, who've kind of got my back. And the same there, you know, I mean, um, Tig, I mean, his call sign is obvious. His last name's Tigan. So it was really easy to call him Tig. Uh, you know, um, Roan, his first name's Tyrone. Uh, Tonto, well, Tonto's part Indian and, uh, um, <laughs> Well, there we go. It's <laughs> and uh, so, you know, and DB and Jack, um, I mean, to this day, 
we're like we're brothers. I mean, we fight, we argue, we all have differences of opinions, um, but we know that together we're much stronger as a group. Which is one reason why we came out with a book, uh, because the truth wasn't being told, and it needed to be. The parents of the individuals that died should know what happened to their sons. They should know what happened that night on the ground, and. But we as a team decided that if one of us didn't want to do the book, we weren't going to do None of us would. So again, it gives us that concept of coming together and staying strong and being that team and surrounding yourself by those guys that are going to help yeah, you um, rather than hinder you and take you in the wrong direction. Mark, what would you, we kind of, uh, all that tactical stuff, but let's reflect on this just a minute if we can. What would you say to the men out here um, in, maybe in, in a battle themselves, and um, maybe they're trying to do it apart from God, or, and, and they're just in this fight, and they're finding this pride, this sense, this is something I went through, matter of fact, for a long time in my life, of I was never going to surrender anything. But it wasn't until I was kind of called to God that I, was, I realized you have to surrender it all. What would you say to these guys based on this kind of experience you've been through in, uh, in Benghazi? Um, well, and a little bit about me is I was blessed with having, I was raised in the Methodist church. I had a wonderful youth pastor and his wife that had a great influence on me, you know, and um, that foundation that was built when I was young in my faith is, uh, is what's always gotten me through things, the difficult times in life. Um, this event here in Benghazi wasn't the first firefight I'd ever been in. And it's the first one that I'd ever gotten blown up in, thank goodness. But, um, you know, I'd lost friends before. I'd gotten in other near explosions real close to me, things like that. And, you know, and I've worked with a lot of guys, as I said earlier, you know, we're all, t we're, we're tough, we're guys. I mean, we got testosterone, ain't nobody gonna tell me nothing. I'm the leader of my life. And um, it's a lot of times when it comes to your faith, People think that is a weakness. I, for me to be faithful, for me to talk about God, for me, that's, that's me surrendering. And that's surrendering my faith and myself to Jesus Christ, a lot of people look at it as something that is, uh, is kind of weak because I need some help because we're all, told, we're all men and we're all strong and we don't need anybody else, right? Well, we do. We all know that we do. I mean, look at that night. We needed God that night. And all of us, I mean, Tonto talks about his faith. He travels around and does speaking things, and he, he couldn't have gotten through that that night without God in his life, without Jesus Christ and that acceptance of Jesus Christ into your life. Because it's like an armor. For me that night, it was like an armor. I mean, I knew, I never was fearful that night of dying. Um, one, because I know that if it is my time on, life, on earth to go, then that is my time, and that's up to God. God's going to take me if, I, if he needs me, but otherwise he's going to leave me here. And if he's leaving me here, it's my responsibility to make sure I find out what he wants me to do. Um, I think that's sharing my story with you all. And I, it's sharing my influence and um, the sacrifices that my brothers made with you all and how God has played that role in our life. Tonto uh, that night said, you know, um, and it's a line in the movie, and it wasn't a line that was put in by the writer. It was put, on, put in by Tonto. And, you know, he said, hey, you know, I've, I've always got God with me. And if I've got God with me, I don't ever worry about nothing else. 
You know, and that's powerful, thinking that. And that's not weakness. That's not being weak. That's being strong. And that's where we all need to stand and stand strong with God and with each other. I think that deserves an amen, guys. I mean, <laughs> yeah. He's got some preacher in him, doesn't he? So uh, we're going to begin to wrap this up. But I, um, what you've described a lot about how God has protected you, and you knew from an early age He was with you. But when you reflect on your life, how has Jesus impacted your heart? How has He impacted the man, Mark Geist? Um, you know, it's, it's that acceptance of Jesus Christ in your life as your Savior uh, that gives you that strength, gives me the strength to work in the places that I've worked. Um, I've been in any country that ends in Stan, I think I've been there. Uh, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, yeah, all of those. Uh, Pakistan, you know, and, uh, and that having that strength and that, that, that feeling of invincibility, um, you know, and it's not ego, it's not that, it's, it's knowing that whatever, it's surrendering my life to God and to Jesus Christ, and in doing that, I know that whatever happens is His will and that I'm going to be okay and those around me are going to be okay because of it. Because our life on earth is a, is a strand with the, a hair Good. compared to eternity. So what we do here isn't as, what we are here isn't as important as what we do here for fellow man and for each other. Yeah, this is where uh, I think, I want us to think about this. Mark is sharing his story. But here's the thing, we all have a story. Mark is talking about how he believes that God has a plan for his life. He's walking it out. But the reality, men, is every single one of us in here, God has a plan for our life. We're not an accident. There are no accidents. The scripture, the Bible says that, that you are God's masterpiece, that he was so intentional. He wanted you. He wanted you, he created you, he loves you, and there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing that you can do that can change God's love for you. And Mark uh, is sharing how he, he came to believe that. He surrendered his life to Christ. Colin, same way. Colin is a retired colonel in the army. And Colin's story is, is that for so long he said, I, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but in his heart, he had a hard time surrendering. He had a hard time with this, but he came to that point in his life where he realized, I can't do this. And it's the same thing for me. I came to a point in my life where I realized, I can't do this on my own. And I surrendered. And so, man, I just want to invite you to close your eyes. And I want you to think about, where are you at with God? Where are you at with God? Are you trying to go at life in your own power? in your own strength, trying to make it work. It's so easy to do that. But the reality is, is God has a better way and that he loves you and he loves you so much he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for your sins and my sins. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's good news. And that's not just something you hear at church. That is intended for you.
those of you that feel that tug at your heart right now, um, I want to ask you, maybe not ask you, I want you to come up to the front. Um, I want you to come up here and surrender to Jesus Christ and do that with me. Those who want to, those who need to, please come up and join me. Do you want to come down here and stand with him in the front? And Mark, why don't you talk about the courage this requires? Your story is a story of courage, but why don't you talk about the courage that, that is required in this moment? It takes courage to do this. Um, it takes courage, and you have that courage within you, and I know that you feel that, because I felt that when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And to do that, to make that first step, um, I kind of compare it to when you join the military, you've got them yellow footprints you've got to stand on. Well, come up here and stand on those yellow footprints with me. Come up here and stand on those yellow footprints. It's, it's, it's a hard step to take, but once you do it, you know that you feel that, and you know that that's right in your life, and you're better for it. Those that are coming up, thank you very much. Let's come into a circle here. All of us together. Thank you, guys. Um, bow our heads in prayer. Jesus, come into your hearts. Come into the hearts of these that are here with me. Enter into their life and change their life forever. Let them accept you, accept you as their Savior, having died on the cross for your sins. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's give it up for these guys right here. Thank you. Thank you, guys. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, I want to invite our fire team leaders to come up here. Maybe you, uh, you've surrendered your life to Christ in the past, but maybe, like Mark is saying, you're in a battle right now, and we want to give you the opportunity to receive prayer. And uh, so we're going to have our leaders on each side. If you're going through any kind of battle right now, in just a second, I want to give you the opportunity. Let another man stand with you and pray with you. That is so powerful. And I also want to highlight uh, in just a moment, Mark is going to be uh, in the back. If you would like to uh, purchase a copy of the book that he wrote, uh, 13 Hours, uh, hard copy uh, books for $20 and he'll autograph them. And so he's going to be right out here outside of these doors in the bookstore. And so in just a second, if you can make your way out and he would be happy to shake your hand, take a picture with you and uh, sign a book with you. So stand to your feet, would you please? Did you enjoy Mark's story tonight? Awesome. Awesome. I just want to invite, invite you, open up your hands just like this. This is just a way we're, we're going to open ourselves up to God. Whatever you're facing, whatever battle you're facing, Jesus literally does have the answer, and he cares. And what I want you to hear as you leave is that Jesus cares about you. He does. He cares about your family.
He cares about what you're dealing with. So right now, whatever that thing is in your life that's causing you to maybe lose sleep at night, that's a burden to you, that fear that's eating at you right now, just with your hands open, just surrender that thing to Jesus, knowing in faith that he does care. The scripture says to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. So just in your own words, quietly, right where you're at, just cast that care, cast that fear, that concern to him. He wants to take that from you. Jesus, we believe that you care. You're a good God. Your heart is perfectly good. And so tonight, we cast our cares on you, our fears, our worries. We give them to you. We surrender them to you in a fresh way. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us to walk the path that you have for each of us, to fulfill the plans you have for each of us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, anything at all, if you want prayer, come on forward. If we have a Bible up here, if you don't have a Bible, they're free, take a Bible. It was great to see you again. Mark is going to be right outside these doors. And uh, thanks for coming out with us tonight.